Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to The Draft Board. We are hoping that you're enjoying the NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs, perhaps Major League Baseball regular season for all you baseball fans out there. Uh, WNBA getting going as well. We certainly hope that everyone out there, all you sports fans, are taking advantage of this embarrassment of riches almost of sports that's that's on. And mm-hmm. also a shout out to Team Canada from rallying back from an 0-3 start to win the double IHF World Hockey Championship mm-hmm. as well. I think, Tyson, that's a very overlooked tournament in the hockey world because it doesn't include the best players from each country. But nonetheless... A great achievement for Canada, nonetheless. I believe, I believe this is their first win in in several years. I think so. 2016, and of course, Calgary Flame. Uh, Andrew Mangiapane played a major role on that team, and you always love to see that if you're a Flames fan, which I am. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew Mangiapane looked really good that whole tournament. He had a very good tournament, so I think that's really exciting for you guys. And you know, also shout out to Connor Brown for the Ottawa Senators. He had the most assists on Team Canada history in, in, I think, a long time, like multiple decades, if not ever. So he had 14 assists. He also had a very good tournament playing alongside him. So good for the good for the Canadian boys to do well in the tournament. And, yeah, get, get some uh, other guys some opportunities to play for Team Canada that maybe not would have had, had it been the Olympics and been best on best. Now, fun fact, when I was a first-year student at the University of Calgary, one of the student union representatives was a former high school hockey player named Connor Brown. Mm-hmm. I can confirm it was not the same person. Not the same person? No, but it was. it's just a, a, a fun little thing I think of whenever I think about Connor Brown, the <laughs> NHL player. But Tyson, speaking of looking good, the New York Islanders mm-hmm. certainly look good right now eliminating the Boston Bruins in six games today and moving on to the Eastern Conference Finals. They're definitely not the Ferrari or the Lamborghini or the Bugatti of the hockey world, but they are a phenomenal defensive team. They they don't have just a great goalie. They don't have just one shutdown pair. They don't have just a, a great shutdown centerman like Philip Deneau or Patrice Bergeron. No, this in, the entire team puts up an absolute force field in the playoffs, and Pittsburgh Penguins experienced that a few a uh, few weeks ago, and Boston Bruins just experienced that as well. And it's giving the old Nassau Coliseum a heck of a send-off party. Yeah, it is. You know, for those of you who may not know, the Nassau Coliseum, the home of the Islanders, is going to be kind of retired after this year for the Islanders. They're going to be moving into Belmont Park, which is a newer upgraded arena which the Islanders desperately needed. They've had some issues with their home arena for a handful of years, briefly moving to Brooklyn a couple of uh, seasons ago. So, you know, it's it's good for the Islanders to remain on Long Island because I think, you know, Billy Smith said it best in 1980 when they won the Stanley Cup. Uh, Billy Smith, Hall of Fame goalie for the Islanders, won four cups. He said, He was asked, how does it feel to finally bring a Stanley Cup back to New York? And he said proudly, it's not on New York, it's on Long Island. Mm. And there's a difference there, and I think it's important for the Islanders to stay on Long Island and not necessarily be a part of Brooklyn and greater New York City area. So, you know, after the beautiful Stanley Cup runs, 
in Nassau Coliseum with Brian Troche, Dennis Potvin, Mike Bossy, handful of legends definitely playing for that team. Uh, unfortunately, there was some ownership issues that plagued the organization for a handful of years, including a famous incident with a man named John Spano who, illegal, mm. who illegally ran and bought the team, and then the FBI got involved. That's a, that's an adventure <laughs> if you have a few minutes of Google searching on your time. Yeah, and they also did a 30 for 30 ESPN episode on it, so check that out if you ever have enough time. But, you know, this is a, a proud franchise, a proud history, and, you know, this is a proud organization, and they love Nassau Coliseum, even if it hasn't been necessarily maintained as, as good as it probably should be. But, you know, it's a good send-off for a, a historic NHL building for the Islanders to be able to have fans back in the building after COVID has kind of gone through everything that it's gone through in the last season and a half. And it's really special for the fans to be able to see the Islanders win playoff games in Nassau Coliseum once again. And against some of the bona fide stars in the NHL as well. Right. Sidney Crosby, Guinea Malkin, Crystal Tang. Last round, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, David Pasternak. This round, what, st- what strikes you, first well, first of all, what strikes you is that New York Mainlanders does not have the same ring to it. Right. But also what strikes you about the Islanders is that they don't really have any star players. Their best forward, Anders Lee, suffered a season-ending injury earlier on, so he's not able to be with them. And when you think about guys like Ryan Pulak, Brock Nelson... Josh Bailey. Josh, Anthony Beauvillier. Uh, some of these are very good hockey players, but they're not the... They're not your A1 Nathan McKinnon, Sidney Crosby type superstars. And yet this team, Tyson, they just... I think it's a very unified team because they, like we said before, they really play incredible team defense so far this postseason. It is a six-man unit, goalie and the five men in front of him. And in the, in the series-clinching game against the Bruins today, if you watch the highlight pack, you see multiple excellent stick checks, diving poke checks by guys like Casey Zizekas, a bottom six forward, to deny prime scoring chances by Boston. Brock Nelson twice made an excellent stick check to, fo- at least twice, I should say, made excellent stick checks to force neutral zone turnovers on the Boston Bruins, which are always very dangerous. And he cashed in on those chances a couple of times. Tyson, we were joking before the episode, the New York Islanders play so defensive that they must have something like a 75% conversion (laughs) rate on their high-danger scoring chances. We don't have numbers to back that up, and it's definitely hyperbole to some extent. But nonetheless, this is a team that has a... They've shot the puck in a very clutch, timely manner. And even though you look at their goaltending situation, like Semyon Varlamov is a talented goalie, but he's getting older. He's battled injuries and inconsistency. They don't have an Andre Vasilevsky, a Carey Price, a Philip Grubauer, a Marc-Andre Fleury to hold down the fort. And what's impressive about that is they haven't needed any of those guys to shut down some of the most offensively talented teams in the NHL. Yeah, no, it's very exciting to kind of like see that and very good to, to notice like how committed they are to defense. And also this team has loads of character. And like guys like Matt Martin and you know Cal Clutterbuck, Casey Zizekas. Cal Clutterbuck, what a hockey name! What huh? a name! Like Jean Gabriel Pajot, like these guys, they're high character players. Like 
I understand that Anders Lee is the captain of the Islanders, but there are a handful of players that, you know, they could be alternate captains or captains on any other teams just because they have such high character in their room and there's so much leadership in that organization as well from the top down through Barry Trotz and Lou Lamorello. Like, they're, they're such a great group as a whole. I think it really emphasizes how much they are as a team has contributed to winning. Maybe because, you know, they don't have the greatest talent. Like you mentioned, they don't have a, a, a $10 million superstar, but they have committed team character and, and they're committed to their plan. And their plan is to play excellent defense and convert on scoring chances. And if I'm not mistaken, we are in for a heck of an Eastern Conference final where these Islanders will try to defend the Coliseum one more time against the Tampa Bay Lightning, the defending cup champions who are as deep as they've ever been. Uh, There were were some salary cap shenanigans with Nikita Kucherov conveniently returning at the start of the playoffs. That maybe is a topic for another time, but Mm -hmm. I think... I think, Tyson, this will be a really, or it has the potential to be a really, really good example of, or, or a showcase of whether or not Captain America's shield can stand up to Thor's hammer, mm. with the lightning being the hammer, because the lightning are, they, they are, they are so in, incredibly deep. They do have a $10 million superstar in Nikita Kucherov, or at least he's good enough to be that. Yeah. They have Steven Stamkos, they have Victor they have, they have I, think, I think their defense though like when when David Savard and Mikhail Sergachev are your third pair that's that's fairly ridiculous to be honest <laughs> and with again guys like Alex Kalorn, Andre Palat, Braden Point, Yanni Gord, all of these all of these players providing offense, providing two-way two-way play. I think the New York Islanders will have their hands more than full, but at the same time, the Tampa Bay Lightning might face a unique challenge in this stifling defense, and we will see We will see who prevails. Yeah, it'll be exciting. It's definitely a strength-on-strength strength situation, so it'll be a good series. So, And I think you're right. Like After the after the after this round, they reseed based off of points, so I think the winner of the West will play Montreal. I, mm-hmm. I believe that's how it's going to be organized. So, yeah, right. it'll be definitely exciting to see strength on strength, the Islanders versus Tampa. And speaking of strength, he, here, here's a strong offseason move. We're going to go back to the NFL for, for a little bit here after mm-hmm. we haven't really talked much football in the last few weeks, but Julio Jones yeah. is a Tennessee Titan now, and I'm sure that, first of all, for the Atlanta Falcon fans out there, this is probably a very bittersweet feeling after falling short in that one Super Bowl that we don't talk about, mm-hmm. but also just having that that team regress significantly from, from that point on, with Julio Jones finally getting tired of Atlanta and wanting out and that being fairly well documented, and this drama of where's he going to go, what is he going to net on the trade market. To be honest, Tyson, I was... I was surprised at the deal based on name value alone because the Falcons traded Julio Jones and a sixth-round pick to the Titans, and they got a second-rounder and a fourth-rounder in return. Now, on its face, any trade involving a seven-time Pro Bowler mm-hmm. for that kind of a, a, a relatively modest return seems 
absolutely ridiculous. But at the same time, Julio Jones is, he's on the wrong side of 30. He's had hamstring issues and he, he has a fairly significant cap hit as well, like at 32 years of age. So I think it's a situation where once you sort of slow down and think about it, it, it makes sense that they didn't get A.J. Brown in a first-round pick for, for Julio Jones or something like that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I, I feel that you know Falcons fans probably aren't a huge fan of how, how things turn out, and they probably have very mixed feelings about it. What do you think? Yeah, I would probably tend to agree with that. Like, I, I'm a little surprised that Julio only got a second, but again, what I think about wide receivers is that they're the most dependent position like you know with a running back for example they depend on the o-line the quarterback to pass the ball they also depend on the o-line and the wide receivers they depend on the offensive line to protect the quarterback and they also depend on the quarterback to you know throw the ball their way and also some instances they require another receiver to help them so like a clear out route or a different scheme to help kind of lead the defense one way or another. So wide receivers are, is the most dependent position, but they also have the biggest chance for boom potential, like skilled players. And you can kind of see guys who are really good at catching the ball can make amazing plays. So it's a little bit interesting to kind of see like position value here is a little bit. I think wide receivers are, you know, a value, a position that is maybe not as value they're not as valuable as a quarterback, but maybe not as valuable as we originally thought because they're a little bit, you know, more dependent on other things. But it's still Julio Jones. I, I would be hard-pressed to find somebody out there who doesn't think that Julio Jones is still a top 10 NH, NFL wide receiver. And arguably top six, maybe, right? if he's healthy. Right, and if he's healthy, maybe top three. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And that's kind of why I'm surprised at the return is because I know Julio Jones has the potential still to get you 10 touchdowns on 1,500 yards. Certainly. Now, I think the counter-argument going the other way is involves in part what we alluded to before, that $15.3 million base salary is definitely a significant number. <laughs> also, his age and his less-than-stellar injury past over the last few seasons, I think these are all relevant factors and there's an argument here that I think that holds water that the Falcons would rather have cap relief and some form of a return this year versus a a first rounder because it clearly they were not able to get a first rounder on the open market despite pushing for that kind of a return again it it sounds wrong because of how good Julio Jones can be when he's a hundred percent or even ninety percent but I admittedly, I was I was someone who had an emotional reaction to it at first, and I was thinking, wow, Atlanta got fleeced. But then as I thought about it and, and I read a couple of articles, I, I considered the factors, and I was like, okay, there there are definitely reasons why Julio Jones didn't, didn't net A.J. Brown in a first-round pick or, right. or, or something like that. But what do you think? Obviously, we have to assume that he's going to be healthy, but in Tennessee... Just think about this. You've got Derrick Henry in the backfield. Mm-hmm. Ryan Tannehill has had a resurgence at quarterback. That's what happens when you get away from Adam Gase, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, even though, first of all, even though Ryan Tannehill is not exactly Patrick Mahomes, he's an athletic quarterback. I don't think he lacks for arm strength. And a play-action attack with Derrick Henry keeping the defense honest – 
and Julio Jones one side, A.J. Brown the other side of the field. Mm -hmm. Sure sounds good to Titans fans, I imagine. Yeah, I I would imagine. Like, I'm sure a lot of Titans fans are extraordinarily happy about this move because it, it definitely signifies to their organization that they're focused on winning. And, you know, a big thing for the Titans especially is being able to try and come back in games. Like, it's really easy when you have Derrick Henry to be able to run the ball, hand the ball to him 25 times a game, and kind of chew that clock, especially in the fourth quarter when the defense is tired and they can just, you know, go for four, five, six yards a carry and just run the clock and keep the ball, keep the time of possession on their side and not give the other team another opportunity to try and score. But when they're coming back from behind, it's really hard to establish a run game because teams don't have to respect it because they know you have to get yards. And it's especially difficult, like, two-minute drill, almost all teams abandon the run in the final two minutes. So I think that's definitely an area where the Titans have struggled in the past is definitely those two-minute situations before the half or the end of the game when they're maybe down and they need to pass. And, you know, all the metrics tell you that Ryan Tannehill, since starting in Tennessee, is a top-ten quarterback. He's around 8-9 for things like QBR, touchdown-to-interception ratio, and passing yards. He, I think he's at 7 for that. So he's a really good quarterback for the Titans, and he definitely is a little bit more than a game manager. But maybe now that he has Julio on that one side and A.J. Brown, who had a very good season last year despite playing hurt most of the year, I think that's a very dynamic opportunity for Ryan Tannehill to pass the ball. Now, they lost John Smith to Patriots, obviously, this free agency period. But, you know, it's another weapon for Ryan Tannehill to be able to throw the ball and also take another guy probably out of the box to give Derrick Henry more opportunities and a better chance to run the ball. It's certainly a, a very good plan in theory. And one thing I'm curious, one thing I'm curious to see, although this may or may not affect the Titans' offensive success in in general, is what happens to Julio Jones's touchdown numbers because a criticism that's been leveled at Jones in the past, I don't think it's fair, but nonetheless, Julio Jones does not catch as many touchdowns as you would expect for a receiver of his overall skill and particularly for a receiver of his stature, six foot three, 220 pounds, 40 inch vertical, screams red zone threat mm-hmm. in, in most situations. I think that when Julio Jones came into the league, there were probably more than a few people that made the comparison to Megatron because he, he's close in terms of size, speed, and athleticism. But Julio Jones, shockingly enough, only has had one 10-touchdown season ever. That was his sophomore year, mm-hmm. 2012, where he had 10 touchdowns to go with 1,198 yards. Since then, his highest number of touchdowns has been eight. Now, in the past, I've read heard a lot of haters try to diminish him for that reason, saying that he doesn't make an impact scoring-wise that he should, that, oh, Antonio Brown's a better receiver. Gee whiz, you see how that, that's your age well. Yeah. Although, with Antonio Brown, that was, that's um, not exactly a, an issue of talent. It was an issue of his mental health and overall life state. So we're not going to talk about that here. But two things while we're, while we're on this topic. First of all, I think the touchdown... I think the touchdown argument is quite flawed because even if you're not catching 15 touchdowns a year, when you're putting up 1,800 yards like Julio did in 2015, 
or near putting up 1,600 plus yards like he did in 2018, 1,400 plus in each of the two years in between. You can't argue that. That's absolutely elite. In 2018, Julio Jones, many of his eight touchdowns came in the second half of the season when he, if memory serves, led all NFL receivers in second half touchdowns. He just had a bit of a slow start as far as the red zone. But having said that, what I want to learn is whether or not playing in a Titans offense that has Derrick Henry to threaten defenses in the red zone and A.J. Brown to threaten off the other side, whether Ryan Tannehill will look Julio Jones's way in the red zone perhaps more than Matt Ryan did in Atlanta, and if so, if he is able to go up and not just stretch the field like he did in Atlanta, but dominate the red zone like he can. Yeah, that would be you know definitely something to look for. In Atlanta, they drafted Calvin Ridley, who now is probably going to be the number one receiver. Calvin Ridley last year with Julio had nine touchdowns. The year before, he had seven. And in his rookie year, he had ten touchdowns. So, you know, just in the last three years, that's an example of a very good, high-quality wide receiver who also needs to get his targets. And he's having high touchdown numbers. And his yards, for example, in his first and second years, were 821 and 866 so he had probably more touchdowns than you would expect for yards whereas Julio he was having more yards for touchdowns so it was kind of a situation in in that what I would think is that Calvin Ridley was more of a red zone target for Matt Ryan in Atlanta than Julio Jones was and that's probably just the way that the offense was designed and and how they played did the play calling in, in Kind of that offensive scheme. And you would have to imagine more than a few times they used Julio as a decoy, knowing that teams were going to double him, especially in the red zone. Yeah. And if Calvin Ridley's open, why don't you throw it to him? Exactly. And that's part of the one reason why Atlanta has said, had such a good offense in the last few years is because people are paying so close attention to Julio that Calvin Ridley goes wild. And then they go after Calvin Ridley because he had a good game. And then Julio has a really good game. And you know, with the character of Julio, he's not particularly, you know, diva-oriented where he demands the ball every play. But, yeah, I think with the Titans, if they can somehow get an opportunity for them to use him in the red zone and, you know, pair him with A.J. Brown on kind of one on one side, one on the other side, get him some single coverage, man, that screams danger for any defense. And it screams to the opposing DB core of any team that you are going to have a rough day. A.J. Brown is built like a big running back. Julio Jones has almost that Megatron body type. They're both extremely strong, physical, and athletic. And and you know what? If I'm I'm opposing NFL cornerback, particularly on a press coverage team, I'm not looking forward to playing the Tennessee (laughs) Titans at all. No, definitely not. And you know if you're playing press coverage, you're also going to have to be expected to stop the run in some situations. Mm, and we know. all know that cornerbacks love to stop the run. Uh, well, some of them maybe do, but listen, Derrick Henry's never fun to tackle. Yeah, no, Josh Norman can tell you everything you need to know <laughs> about tackling Derrick Henry. So, yeah, I, I think that if the Titans uh, can utilize Julio Jones, he can be a massive part of that offense where they can really open up new things and open up a whole new section of the playbook. And I think uh, Mike Vrabel down in Tennessee is going to have lots of fun on his offense this year. I know he's a defensive guy, but I think he's going to really like it. Absolutely. 
Now, speaking of liking things, the Los Angeles Clippers fan base must be breathing a collective sigh of relief right now as their team managed to come back from an 0-2 series deficit to take out the Dallas Mavericks in seven games. Now, there are still many questions to be answered, obviously. First of all, Utah is is incredibly good team. They're the number one seed, and as of this recording, they have a 1-0 lead over the Clippers, although it was a close game. And we have to remember that the Clippers, Clippers, my bad, had a 3-1 series lead on the Denver Nuggets in the conference final last year before they collapsed disastrously. Nonetheless, I think it was a good litmus test for Clipper fans to see that this team can fight back from adversity. They can make up deficits and really put it out on the line when it matters first. And Kawhi Leonard certainly did that in this series, particularly in game number six, a very, very important matchup. Dallas had won game five by a five-point margin a couple of days before that point. And, and game six, the Clippers really needed to tie the series up to give themselves a chance to win on their home court. And Kawhi Leonard put up 45 points on an insanely efficient 18 of 25 from the floor added six rebounds, three assists, and two steals as the Los Angeles Clippers, excuse me, escaped with a 104-97 win. Now, Raptors fans, Tyson, we all know that Kawhi Leonard is capable of, of, of carrying a team, saving a team, and elevating when it matters most. But to me, Tyson, one of the most impressive things was the fact that Kawhi Leonard in that game six held Luka Doncic to something like, memory doesn't serve well enough for me to know the exact number, but the vast majority of Luka Doncic's 29 points in that game six came in the first half. And Kawhi Leonard was a two-way juggernaut in the second half. Yeah, that's the case. I don't think that he had more than 10 points in the second half. So Luka definitely struggled down the stretch. And I think that's part of what the Clippers tried to do with Luka is to tire him out so that way as the game goes along, he's less and less effective. So I think that was definitely a game plan. And having Kawhi Leonard on him a lot definitely is exhausting for any player because we know that Kawhi Leonard is still a very excellent defender and he has very high intensity when he is healthy and when he can. Uh, especially in short bursts in the playoffs, he can defend like nobody else out on there on the perimeter. So I definitely think that in this situation, Kawhi really drove the Clippers to victory in those, you know, games five, six, seven, to really kind of push that. Was it game five that they won? No, Dallas won game five. It was the six and seven that really mattered. Game six and seven, Mm -hmm. Kawhi was kind of the deciding factor for me in those victories and you know especially game six he he had an outstanding offensive performance but he also was able to really guard Luca well I think if anyone forgot what the claw was capable of they were they were well reminded in that series now game seven was a was a very interesting ride. I watched that game and it was certainly a roller coaster mm-hmm. because Luka Doncic returned to form in a huge way in that game. 46 points, 17 of 30 from the floor, 5 of 11 from 3. That those are all very good percentages. He added 7 rebounds and 14 assists for a massive playoff 
double, double, and yet the Dallas Mavericks lost 126 to 111. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, Kawhi must have put up another 45. Mm. Well, he actually didn't in, in, in Game 7, as, as many basketball fans know. He quote-unquote only scored 28 points. That's a ridiculous-sounding statement, but he only scored 28 points. Still extremely efficient, 10 of 15 shooting. Kawhi definitely impacted the game in plenty of other ways, though. He added 10 assists, sorry, 10 rebounds, 9 assists, 4 steals, and 1 block. So he was all over the floor, impacting the game in almost every single way. But certainly he by himself did not cancel out Luka, nor was he able to slow down Luka the way that he did in Game 6. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what about Paul George, the other all-star on the Los Angeles Clippers? He, to me, is a bit of a, an interesting story in, in the end of that Mavericks series. He scored 20 points in Game 6, 22 points in Game 7. He was not efficient in either game. He was 6 of 15 in Game 6, 5 of 15 in Game 7, and he made a combined four threes in 15 attempts in those two games. So that's not what you want to see from Paul George if you're a Clippers fan. Granted, he did contribute in other ways. In the Game 6, he added 13 rebounds, 6 assists, and 3 blocks, perhaps at least in spurts going back to the former all-defensive first-team player that he used to be. And certainly you argue that he's not that anymore, but and then in Game 7, he added the 6 rebounds, 10 assists, and 3 steals. So Paul George was heavily, heavily criticized, and rightfully so, for his pandemic performance mm -hmm. last year. And I know that you know, you're know you not the biggest fan of him, but what would you say overall about George's, George's performance in these critical games? He wasn't efficient scoring, but he did help out in other ways that ended up to at least contribute to the difference. I think he's okay. Just think he's okay. <laughs> like, really. <Yeah. laughs> like, realistically, like, I, I expect more from Paul George. And I think everybody is continuously expecting more from Paul George. And that's why when he, you know, is able to contribute to a win, and but he's still inefficient, everybody is looking at Paul George and going, you know, you're still not where you once were. And I think that when we're looking at Paul George and we're looking at him, we keep looking back to the days that he was in Indiana, and we saw what he was in Indiana, and we saw that he could be an exceptional defensive player but still be an, a very good offensive player as well. And I, I just don't see, like, his defensive ability there. Like, he was not good when he was guarding Luka this series. And, you know, Paul George, he's not efficient scoring the basketball anymore. You know, he had that 29-point game three. But since then, you know, he's been shooting only 36%, which is not good, especially from anywhere on the floor. I'm thinking that maybe he's just not at the level that everybody expects him to be anymore. And that makes me think that maybe Paul George isn't good enough to be a number two superstar on a championship team. That's that's what I'm thinking. That's where I'm at. And, you know, maybe Paul George, he can kind of snap out of it, become a prolific scorer again, step up his defense. But certainly Utah's not a great team to try to find your touch yeah. against. Yeah, and I mean the thing is is that since the pandemic it's been a long period of time like Paul George he also struggled against Utah back when he was in Oklahoma City. 
So that's definitely going to be something that's going to be coming back to him. Maybe he can exercise some demons in this series. But ultimately, I think that Paul George, he's kind of in this weird place in his career where it's almost as if his prime is already past him, but he's only 31 years old. So I think he's kind of in this fringe state where he needs to rediscover his game a little bit. And everybody keeps waiting for Paul George to do better because we know that he can, but he just doesn't live up to everybody else's expectations. Well, one thing that did live up to everybody's expectations in the back half of the Clippers-Mavericks series was the Clippers team defense. Now, in our previous episode, we talked about how the Clippers, despite being a highly experienced veteran team, seemed lost and confused and routinely outmaneuvered in their half-court defense. The Mavericks frequently cut past them, exploited mismatches and miscommunications to score easy and uncontested or lightly contested buckets. But down the stretch, the Clippers really did seem to figure things out as I said that they would have to in order to win this series. Someone like, for example, Nicholas Batum, who frankly was served as burn notice quite often Mm -hmm. in the first two games of the series, really stepped it up and proved to be capable of playing meaningful defense down the stretch. And then in general, Marcus players like Marcus Morris, he started to get going and score some critical points in critical times, as well as contributing to an overall team defense that was much more difficult for the Mavericks to exploit consistently. But I would I think that ultimately though, another key storyline in this in this series was was depth. Mm-hmm. Now basketball is reputed as a sport where one or two superstars can carry a team deep into the playoffs certainly more than a sport like hockey hockey, right right you know if you have lebron james and anthony davis well gee whiz you're you're pretty much set you can you can build a very very good great team around that but i think that this this series was an indication of how that has its limits because the frank truth is the maverick supporting cast failed luka Doncic when he needed their help the most tim hardaway jr for example was shooting it very very well from beyond the arc in the first few games of the series would you like to know his three-point percentage in the all-important game seven yeah i would one for nine Oh, no. One for nine, five of 14 overall from the field. That turns into 11 total points. That is obviously far from good enough in a series-defining game. And I don't know why he went cold, but the Mavericks could not survive having one of their best sharpshooters go that ice cold at a time like that. And in addition, we have the curious case of Kristaps Porzingis, who in the past has been referred to as a unicorn because it's because he's a 7-3 setter that can shoot the three. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in, in more recent years, you can liken him to a unicorn in a, in a different sense in that he kind of disappears. Yeah. And he is, he is hard to find on the basketball court in terms of making meaningful contributions in also, games. Also staying healthy. Also staying healthy. But even when he is mostly healthy, like he was in this series, he scored under 10 points in games five and six that's just not going to cut it for a player with his talent level and granted they did try they seemed to try to involve him in the offense a lot more in game seven he had 16 points uh six of 12 from the floor and he 
was definitely more proactive than he was earlier in the series. He was cutting for dunks and layups a lot more often, and Boban Marjanovic managed to find him for some of these plays as they rolled this this super jumbo package to counter the the Clippers small package. And Porzingis also added 11 rebounds in Game 7, so he certainly made an impact on some ways. Having said that, remember how I said Tim Hardaway was 1 for 9 from beyond the arc in Game 7? Kristaps Porzingis was 0 for 5. And again, that's just not good enough. Um. And I think that in a series where Kawhi Leonard was excellent, Paul George at least was contributing in multiple categories with two double-doubles in the final two games, and... I talked about Marcus Morris Sr. earlier, Nicholas Batum's improved defense. Reggie Jackson had 25 points in Game 6 and 15 points in Game 7, giving the Clippers an extra spark. Mavericks simply did not have the depth to match it, and Luka Doncic found himself on the losing end despite a heroic effort. Yeah, that's kind of what happened. And, and like, they lost by 15 points, so if they make... or Yeah, they lost by 15 points, so they make five threes. Like, you know, if... And you think Tim Hardaway Jr. and Chris Stapps Porzingis need to be able to combine for five threes? You know, like Tim Hardaway Jr. hits four out of five out of nine, and Porzingis goes two out of five. Like that's a tie game. Like that's kind of the difference, right? Is that you get a little bit more from some of these guys that you mentioned, and you know, Luca. He's a very good player, and I know that Luca is such a good a, a quality scorer. He needs to work on his defense. He needs to work a little bit on his positioning. Um, and sometimes he can be quite turnover prone with the ball at times. But, you know, he's carrying the ball a lot, so that's going to happen. You just kind of need to live with it, especially with a young player like Luca. But he's such a skilled player. He can absolutely control and lead a team. And I think in this situation, like, Luca was just outclassed over the course of the series by Kawhi Leonard. And I think that that's a, also a, a fairly legitimate reason why the Clippers moved on and the Mavericks did not. The thing about Luka Doncic is he's only 22 years old, which is ludicrously young mm-hmm. for a guy who is putting up 40 spots in the playoffs mm-hmm. at, at times against very, very good competition. And Tyson, we were talking about something before the show that I think is worth discussing on the show, that you think Luka's upbringing and basketball experience in Europe contributed to this. Absolutely. I look at, like, uh, NCAA basketball, university basketball, and I look at, you know, even, like, high school basketball in the States, and I see how these players are being developed and being played, and they're very much similar and kind of being made in the mold of a Russell Westbrook type, a Kyrie Irving type. Which we all know Russell Westbrook's your favorite player. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> right? Not really. No. So, like, these guys, they have immense God-given talent that are just well and above their peers, as it would be. So these great gifted basketball players are being taught to use their skill and to develop their individual skills and just go and get buckets every chance they can because if they can do it, why won't they do it? So you have all of these individual skills being developed in the United States where it's all about shooting and ball handling and, you know, certain, you know, drills and, you know, being able to get to the to the bucket and to be able to get tough layups and, you know, different spins on the basketball so that way 
you know, they can manipulate the backboard in whatever way that they need to. And this is all good development, but these kids that are being developed in basketball, they're not being taught how to play with others. They're not being taught about basketball systems and different formations, especially because what a lot of really good high school basketball players are being taught is essentially just run man-to-man defense and your athleticism will just smother the player no matter what because you're just you're you're so much more athletic than they are so it's just man-to-man defense and it's just individual skill to the max and that's kind of what has happened in basketball where you get these guys that are going through the the high school system they come in they're really highly rated recruits because they you know have all of these great individual stats and they have one year at college and then they're done. And sometimes in the case, like with James Wiseman, he only played, I think, two games for the Memphis Tigers before going to the NBA draft. Like, these players are not given enough time in college to develop an understanding of how basketball works. And even sometimes in the college game, the college coaches, they use their best players because they're the best players, they're the highest recruits, and they know that they only have them for a year. So they use them in a way that is very similar to how they were being used in high school. So they just put the ball in the best player's hands, let him run the offense, and you know he's going to score 30 points a game because that's what they need him to do. And that's kind of what happens in American basketball. Luca was not brought up in the system. He was playing professional basketball in Europe by the time he was 15. So this means that because Luca was playing for a professional team and a professional organization, he had to learn the offense that the team was running, especially because he was so young, his skill level wasn't far and above his peers because he was playing with professional basketball players. Adults. Adults. So Luca was having to grow his skill and his game in order to fit within the system that they were playing at the time, but also he's learning other systems. He's learning how to play basketball. And yes, Luca does have exceptional individual skills, but Luca is so much more equipped for the NBA Basketball Association. Like, because he knows how to play basketball correctly in a team sense, because he knows how to manipulate defenders. He knows how to bring a player here to this section of the court so that way I can go to another area that's open and maybe hit a pass. Wait a second. Are you meaning to insinuate that the game of basketball is an actually a team sport and is more than just ISO drills at the top of the key? Yes. I'm being extremely facetious, obviously, but <laughs> overall, you know, I think you make I think you make a very intriguing point and I think that in the person of Luka Doncic there's fairly compelling evidence, at least in, in a certain sample size, to to support your theory. And, you know, I think I've, I think uh, we're very blessed, first of all, to have someone like Luca who shows that, yeah, you can put up your 40 points and your 15 assists a game when it calls for it, but you can also be able to run multiple offensive systems and to try to win games in a variety of ways, which ultimately that's how you succeed. Yeah, and I think, like, Luca's shown that he can... He can have success in ISO ball. He can run the pick and roll systems. He can play in a relatively, you know, positionless basketball where they have a big man at the three and they kind of have four guys on the perimeter and and they can 
run different things through Luka. And yeah, Luka right now, he's a ball dominant player because, you know, he's always been, you know, the most skilled kind of, especially growing up. And once he got later on into his, you know, years in Europe and the, in the pro league in Europe, like he was a very good player at age of 18 in the Europe pro league before coming to the NBA. So he's a ball dominant player. Yes. But he's also been being able to create offense for his teammates much better and much more efficiently than guys like Kyrie Irving, James Harden, or Russell Westbrook. Ah, yes. Well, one last parting jab at uh, our old friend Russell Westbrook there. Now, again, I'm being facetious, but you know what? Why don't we talk about someone else that knows how to share the basketball and knows how to run the Mm -hmm. offense? And that, of course, is Chris Paul, who at 36 years of age appears to be going on one last run at a championship. And boy... Are he and the Phoenix Suns having having a great time so far? I mean, they they call this man the point god <laughs> for a reason. He he really is a true point guard. He can score from anywhere on the floor on any play, but he doesn't look to put up 35, 40 points a game. He looks to get his teammates involved and make the right decisions at the right times in order to maximize his team's success. Now, in the first two games the Nuggets series that's going on right now. He's very impressive. 21 points, 11 assists in the first game. And in the second game tonight, which, by the way, the Phoenix Suns won 123-98. to Nice. Very dominant effort. Chris Paul had 17 points, 6 of 10 from the field, and 15 assists. Mm. Vintage point god tonight. Frankly, I'm a bit sad I wasn't uh, sitting in front of my TV to watch it, but <laughs> these are the sacrifices we make to record podcasts every once in a while. But what I wanted to talk about more specifically is what he and Devin Booker and their Suns teammates did to the Los Angeles Lakers the series prior. Now, we have to get certain obvious issues out of the way. Anthony Davis was hurt or injured, rather. He suffered a very unfortunate setback to his groin in, I believe, game... I believe it was game four. He missed game five and then was not able to play more than five minutes in game six. Uh, So that was obviously a massive loss for the Lakers, which essentially left them without a big man capable of guarding DeAndre Ayton in the post. And DeAndre Ayton was, first of all, ridiculously efficient from down low. I I think he was shooting, again, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but well north of 85% from the field uh, in, in the post. That is, that's fairly spectacular and... Actually, I I see that I'm going on a bit of a tangent about DeAndre Ayton right now, so I'm just going to run with that for a little bit before we bring it back to Chris Paul. But Tyson, one thing I like love about DeAndre Ayton is that he's a he's he's not a guy that's trying to make himself into a stretch five just because the three point shot is important in today's NBA. And DeAndre Ayton was a highly touted prospect coming coming out of college. A number one overall pick in in twenty in twenty eighteen, sorry, and he's really figured out that he needs to work to his strengths, and I'm sure that the Phoenix coaching staff helped him do this. That he needs to rebound like a big man, which he does, and he needs to dominate the post and get himself open so that playmakers like Chris Paul can get the ball in his hands. He's extremely effective in doing that, and without an Anthony Davis to defend him, the Lakers really had trouble handling a guy like that. Mm -hmm. And 
Of course, again, the other the other obvious issue going back to what I was talking about now, LeBron James was clearly playing hurt this series as well. The commentators on multiple occasions noted how he wasn't attacking the rim the way that he normally does, even when his team was down significantly. And you have to wonder how compromised he was physically that he was unable perhaps to, to do that the way that he could normally mm-hmm. and, and should. But to go to your, your point earlier about about playing basketball and not just putting up gaudy individual numbers, Chris Paul's stat line from the Game 7, sorry, the Game 6 against the Lakers, 8 points, a mere 4 of 12 from the floor as his right shoulder continued to bother his, his shooting stroke, mm-hmm. and yet... I would have to tell you, if I'm being honest, that he had an incredible effect on his team, particularly in the second half when the Lakers started to make a run. Part of it was 12 assists, that he definitely got the ball in the hands of his teammates who were knocking down open threes or cutting for layups. But one thing that Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy noticed in in that game was the fact that Chris Paul calmed down the rest of the Phoenix Suns the moment he stepped on the floor in the second half. He did not need to score 20, 22, 25, 30 points a game, but he he took the basketball and he ran the half-court offense, and not only did his teammates seem to physically calm down, but they were also able to receive the ball when he put it in their hands and execute by making the shots that they needed to make as the Phoenix Suns put the Lakers away. And, you know, sure, it's great to have a a triple-double, but impact like this is no less significant. Yeah, and I think this is a good testament to the leadership that Chris Paul has. Like, he's definitely a player who brings more to the game than just his stats. You know, he's not a guy that, you know, is going to put up incredible numbers, but Chris Paul, he got an MVP vote. Like, even though he's putting up, you know, what we would consider to be decent numbers in terms of points and assists and rebounds, but he brings so much more to the game that isn't just all about points and scoring. He brings intangibles like leadership and a common presence, and he brings things like organization to an offense where he's able to you know, run an offense and get people in the correct positions for them to be able to have success, whereas maybe a younger, more inexperienced point guard wouldn't necessarily see the things that Chris Paul sees on the basketball court. So I think you make good points that his effect of the game goes beyond the stat sheet. And it's hard for us to always remember that just looking by box score numbers. But, you know, Chris Paul, he is a guy who is able to definitely bring more to the table. And I, you know, I appreciate you for bringing that up. Uh, another thing, though, that I that I really need to bring up is what Devin Booker did in that Game 6. Now, it was a 113-100 to victory for the Phoenix Suns. As I said, Chris Paul very modest scoring in that game, partially due to his nagging injury. But frankly, as I was watching that game, I thought to myself, Devin Booker must have been watching Luka Doncic, and mm-hmm. he said, hold my beer. <laughs> because Devin Booker put up 47 points and 11 rebounds in the series-clinching Game Six. What's even more ridiculous, 15 of 22 from the floor, 8 of 10 from beyond the arc. He was absolutely unstoppable, and the Los Angeles Lakers had no answer for him. No, that's true. And 
just so you, uh, going back to DeAndre Aiden, his field goal percentage was 80%. 80. Okay, not quite 85, but still extremely significant. Extremely high. But back to Booker, he, man, we there's a we all remember the game that he scored 70, I believe it was, and, and it was the overtime game in the regular season. And the general criticism for him was he's just a scorer on a bad team. You know, he's just a guy who can get buckets on, on a team that doesn't win because they don't have anybody else to pass the ball to. And I think that this, you know, playoffs is really showing the rest of the NBA and kind of the rest of the media, no, he can score when the games matter on a good team. And, you know, Devin Booker is kind of going to be that guy that's going to lead the Suns in scoring because, you know, Chris Paul is not. And, you know, because Devin Booker has the ability to shoot the three, like you mentioned, very well from beyond the uh, three-point line, he's going to put up more points than DeAndre Ayton would. But, you know, Devin Booker is definitely a player who has natural scoring abilities, and it's really good to be able to see him do it not just in the regular season, but when the games really start to matter in the playoffs. I think he has a really bright future ahead of him. He looks like he's going to be a really good scorer for a long time. And the thing about the Phoenix Suns that makes them scary is the fact that they don't need any of either of their individual stars to put up massive numbers to win. To put that in perspective, Booker really took a step back in terms of scoring output in the two games against the Nuggets so far. 21 points and 8 assists in Game 1 against Denver, which that's still a pretty good stat line, and he was an efficient 8 for 12 from the field. Game 2, he had he took a bit of a step backwards, 18 points, 10 rebounds, but 6 of 14 from the field is not as efficient as he can be capable as he's capable of rather. And yet the Denver not sorry, and yet the Phoenix Suns won both games. So I think that's a very important thing that whereas when you look at the Dallas Mavericks, Luka needs to put up numbers for that team to win particularly in the mm-hmm. playoffs. In, with the Phoenix Suns, Chris Paul doesn't need to go crazy, although he had two extremely, you know, point guard trademark game, point guard trademark games in uh, so far. Devin Booker does not need to put up 35 no. in, in order for them to win. They seem to have a very good thing going right now. Guys like Mikhail Bridges and Cam Payne and Jay Crowder have been very effective supporting players. We obviously talked about DeAndre Ayton being a force at the five spot, and if or rather, unless the Denver Nuggets can turn it around, Phoenix looks like they're on their way to a very deep run. Let's not forget about Langston, light him up, Galloway. Ah, yes, the inside joke that I wasn't <laughs> sure you were going to bring up. Uh, for all you non-basketball fans out there, ignore that. Langston Galloway is an undrafted player who <laughs> has been a journeyman his entire career, and he is an end-of-bench guy for the Phoenix Suns that does not factor into any game that's remotely close. But... A Detroit regional network commentator gave him that very cringy nickname once, and Tyson and I never, never forget that fact. He is uh, oh. Langston, light him up, Galloway, and you should forget that name. Because... He has one rebound today. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, you know what? He We book him for finals MVP right now. MVP right now. Finals MVP <laughs> right now. Anyways... Speaking of MVPs, look at that segue that just materialized out of nowhere. Nikola Jokic is your MVP in real life. Yeah. And uh, Nikola Jokic is a little bit more deserving of that honor than a player like Langston Galloway. We will we we will say we will say that much. 
He's a sixth-year man out of Serbia, still 26 years old. He, he's fairly young. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at first glance, he doesn't fit the profile of an, of an NBA superstar. Sure, he's seven feet tall, 270, 280 pounds, but when you look at him, you realize he is not an athletic 270 the way Joel Embiid yeah. is. He is, not ex- he is not in great shape. We'll say that much. He does not have a great vertical He's not necessarily a guy who will bully you in the post the way DeAndre Ayton or Joel Embiid does, but despite that, Nikola Jokic can flat out play basketball. His his fundamentals are, are, are so sound, right? And, and and it really makes up for a lack of for a lack of raw athleticism on his part. I in fact I wonder what Tim Duncan would have to say about Nikola Jokic's game because it's not super flashy even though he's a big with three point range mm-hmm. it's not flashy it's just extraordinarily effective where he'll get the ball anywhere on the on the floor and he'll make the right play to either score himself pardon me or 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 help out his teammates Jokic averaged 26.4 points and 10.8 rebounds this season. Those are very, very good numbers for a center. He was a double-double machine. But Tyson, to me, and I think to a lot of other people, what really sets Jokic apart from definitely other big men in the league is his playmaking and his vision. Because to go along with those 26 points and 10-odd rebounds, Joker, as he's affectionately known, averaged 8.3 assists per game this year mm-hmm. as a seven foot center and uh i don't know when i think about that I, i'm a little bit speechless but wow like what what an effort and i really to be honest with you i really think that that's the thing that separates him from joel Embiid, who was also in an, an mvp an mvp candidate because joel Embiid is obviously way more athletic he's your sort of prototypical modern day center because he can bully you in the post a variety of moves in the post. He rebounds like a big. He has the ability to be a dominant defender when his intensity level is high, and he can take it out to the three-point line. Those are all very good things, and the 76ers need him to go deep in the playoffs. But when you're Nikola Jokic and you can move the ball like a point guard, mm-hmm. that is that's just I mean that's something that Joel Embiid can't do. That's something that no other no other big can do and it's it's absolutely astounding and i think that this is this was the same decision for for the league to give Jokic the mvp i think so too and like i get it like a lot of people will say that Embiid is more talented than Jokic. i think that's true and first I, of and all i think that's true as well but you know Embiid, he doesn't play enough games like he's gonna you, you can book him every year to miss 20 to 40 games depending on the season and you know that's really tough for you know, players and, and voters to go, yeah, this guy is the MVP, even though he's going to miss a quarter or even a half the season. I like what you mentioned about Jokic's playmaking because that's what really kind of sets him apart from some of the other bigs. And I also like to mention that this goes back to the Luka conversation because you mm-hmm. know Jokic is from that European League development system where Jokic, even as a big, has a better understanding on passing the basketball and being able to manipulate defenses and be able to take advantage of certain offensive and defensive systems to be able to be an effective player. Like Jokic is doing the same thing that uh, 
Luca is doing just from the center position. He did start playing professionally when he was 16 years old in Europe. Right? So there you go again. Like another player that grew up in professional basketball, learning the game from a team standpoint rather than an individual skill standpoint. So when you look at Jokic, you think, man, he shouldn't have as much uh, as much points or uh, he shouldn't be as good as he is because he doesn't have the individual talent or the athleticism or the athleticism that so many of these other basketball players have but his knowledge of the game surpasses others at his position which is what makes him so good and certainly he came from humble beginnings unlike someone like Luka Doncic he was a former 41st overall second round pick in the 2014 NBA draft with translation the NBA drafts only two rounds and he was literally the bottom of the barrel at that point when he was drafted average 10 points per game in his rookie season very again very very modest and you know back then people people criticized his lack of athleticism he's like you know like who who is this guy will he ever amount to anything and then but over time it appeared that his his fundamental understanding of the game just continued to develop uh, with good coaching obviously and one more thing I'd like to point out is that style points don't actually give you more points <laughs> per trip, per field goal, per trip down the floor, right? You know, you know, people will say that, yeah, Embiid is more talented. Okay, sure. If you want a, a flashy highlight reel or a more entertaining fan experience, I think Joel Embiid mm-hmm. will give you that. You know, sure, they, Joel Embiid's version of 25 and 10 is he will drive the ball down the floor and windmill dunk it down somebody's throat or he will murder a guy for an offensive rebound Mm -hmm. and put it back over him but the truth is it doesn't really matter how you score you just have to score it doesn't really matter how you win to a certain extent you just have to win and you know what again Jokic averaging 26.4 points again how many of those are highlight reel dunks probably not many but it doesn't matter and when we again go back to especially his passing it is frankly it's something i'm glad that the nba has officially recognized by giving him this mvp award he's the first big since the year 2000 i believe to win mvp shaquille o'neal personally congratulated him on nba on tnt uh, a day ago Jokic is special and I think that the fact that the Denver Nuggets have made it as far in the playoffs as they did the the second round, despite tragically losing Jamal Murray to an injury earlier in the season, shows you how valuable Jokic is. Yeah, I, I really think so. And, you know, Jokic is going to be able to, you know, really help and, and bring that, you know, European basketball to North America. And, you know, I think that he has, he's still only 26. He's got lots of room to grow, and I think that he's only going to get better. And, yeah, I'm excited for what he can do for the rest of these playoffs and, and yeah, what, what he can do later down in the road in the future. You know, Tim Duncan is known as the big fundamental because he wasn't flashy. He was just incredibly good, and he's considered one of the best big men of all time for that reason. And I can't help but think Nikola Jokic embodies the ideal of being the big fundamental in a different way than Tim Duncan does, but still cut from that same block because he relies on his intelligence, his basketball IQ, uh, being in the right place at the right time and being unselfish, knowing how to get his his teammates involved. It's 
Again, yeah, sure, it's not it's not a windmill dunk over a guy, but it's beautiful basketball in a different way, and it mm-hmm. it sets his team up for success. Now, granted, as we've said before, Phoenix Suns truly have been reborn from the ashes, and Denver looks like they're in very tough against them right now. But nonetheless, Nikola Jokic has a bright, bright future, and we do hope he stays healthy because I think that he will will be revolutionizing the center position for many years to come. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, yeah. Yeah, so having said that, I think we should move on to that other playoff run that's been going on in North America right now, and that, of course, is the NHL. And Tyson, you're a Leafs fan, and because of that reason, I think it's only appropriate we begin with the post-mortem autopsy of your Toronto Maple Leafs, up 3-1 against the Montreal Canadiens and ended up losing in seven. I, 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 I see the look on your face right now. The listeners can't, but Tyson, now that you've had a, a few days to commiserate that, what would you say were some of the things that went wrong? Um, I mean, besides everything... <laughs> right. Um, uh, John Tavares getting kneed in the head, Carey Price being an absolute terminator, you know, all of these blah, blah, these usual things. But besides every, the problem, I guess, was that the Leafs had 40% of the salary cap devoted to three players, and the three players combined for one goal. Mm. Now, granted, part of that is John Tavares, who missed, you know, most of the series because of the freak accident that happened, and he is now, thankfully, on his way to a good recovery. Um, but Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews combined for one goal, and, like, that's just not good enough for the playoffs. You know, I, I believe that we had good depth. Like, Spezza played very well. Kerford had a couple of goals. Thornton had a goal. You know, our, our depth players were contributing, and Galchenyuk was doing very well. I understand that he had that, you know, colossal mistake in uh, Game Six. No, it was Game, it was Game Five. It was Game Five that he had that colossal mistake that led to the overtime winner. But, you know, Galchenyuk, he he was still able to provide very good offense. He was dangerous. He was able to you know, play very well with William Nylander. And I think that when we look at the team as a whole, the two players that underachieved the most were two of our most expensive players, which was Austin and Mitch. And I think that, you know, when I was talking with you last, you mentioned to me, like, what do you think the Leafs need to do to close out the series? And I said... Austin will be fine and Mitch will be fine. I think we just need to keep focusing on the defense. And I was wrong because Austin and Mitch didn't figure it out. And The narrator said they were not fine, essentially. They were, they were not fine. And, you know, it's tough because when you look at all of the stats, like Toronto had more expected goals for, you know, Jack Campbell had a better save percentage than Carey Price did in that series. That's not easy to do, by the way. That is not easy to do. And, like, that game six overtime, we had ten shots in a row in overtime, and Montreal gets the last shot, and and that's the game. So when, you know, you're thinking about this series for the Leafs, 
by most metrics that you look at, advanced stats, regular stats, whatever you need to look at, it should suggest that the Leafs should have won this series. But we didn't. And I think that you got to give credit to Montreal. Carey Price is outstanding. Montreal had a game plan, which was to do two things. And it was to forecheck and hit us a ton and to play exceptional defense. And, you know, Philip Deneau, he was part of that. And, you know, the four big defense, Weber, Petrie, Sherratt, Edmondson. and Edmondson, those guys did their job. But what I think was a kind of an underrated factor in this series is that the Montreal Canadiens out-hit the Toronto Maple Leafs every single game. Mm. And I think in a short series, it's okay if that happens to you because you're expecting the series to be short so the hits don't accumulate over a long time, but the hits accumulate over a six, seven game series. So as soon as this series went seven, I realized that the hits that the Montreal Canadiens were putting on in games one and two and three were starting to add up, especially in games four and five and six. And that's part of the reason why you saw in games six and seven, the tide turn from the Leafs' favor to the Canadiens' favor. Part of this is also due to a few things. Like, you could tell throughout, like, Mitch Marner in this series, like, he was visibly frustrated at a lot of times. Mm. And you could tell... I mean, five puck over glass penalties in one series will do that to a guy. Yeah, you can tell he was nervous. Like, Mitch Marner, like, he almost... It seemed like he was constantly on edge and Mm. never got comfortable in the playoff series. Like, he was just constantly trying and fighting to make an impact, and he just wasn't able to, and that frustrated him, like, to no end. And I get it, because Mitch Marner, he's a good player. And Austin, you know, he had his chances, but he just wasn't able to capitalize. And I know for a goal scorer, that gets into you mentally, in the belief Mm. that you just, you can't buy one, it seems like. Mm. You know, shooting 3.3% in the series for Austin Matthews, that's just, it's not good enough. And going into Game 7, after the emotional debacle of the overtime in Game 6, I think it just, it was already sealed. Um, Mm. Going into that game, especially in the first period, you could see, just by watching the Leafs, they didn't have any emotion. They didn't have any life. And they didn't have any fight. And Montreal believed they were going to win. And Toronto was hoping they were going to win. Yeah, I think I agree with most of what you said. It's a it's a bitter pill in the long line of many bitter pills that Leafs fans have had to swallow for the last several years. And I do want to get some things out of the way. That, like you said, first of all, credit to Montreal. Carey Price is a Terminator. Uh, when he's on his game, he's unreasonably good. And uh, as you were saying, when Toronto was dominating the flow of play for long stretches of particularly Game Five and Game Six. And Carey Price just erased the Canadians' mistakes and shortcomings time and time again. We we have to give credit for that. It is definitely not the first time a hot goalie has stolen a playoff series, so on and so forth. I think another place we have to give credit is the Montreal Canadiens' opportunistic offense. When they had their chances, they took advantage of them despite a sparkling 1.81 goals against average, 934 save percentage from Jack Campbell. It's not as if goaltending was close to being a weakness for 
for Toronto, but at the end of the day, the Canadians were able to score enough goals to win the series in the end. And even though, frankly, I don't really like the term choke, uh, I think that's that that's a term that I think fans will throw around because you know it's it's harsh, it's sarcastic, it's incendiary, and if you don't like a team, it feels really good to say that they choked and that they they collapsed and everything. But you know, to be to be perfectly honest, I do think that something that's getting lost in the wash, even though we must admit that Toronto collapsed catastrophically, much like the Clippers did uh, last year, this series was for the most part so razor close when it came down to the all-important game five and game six. They were both one goal games decided in overtime. And to the Leafs' credit, Canadians went up, well, I believe what it was, three nothing in game five. And Toronto stormed back with three goals. They even managed to get a couple of soft ones past Carey Price and just a little bit of puck luck. And then in the opening two minutes of that overtime, a horrible turnover leads to a two-on-nothing. There's nothing you can do about a two-on-nothing other than pray that it doesn't go in. And and so, boom, there goes one opportunity to close the series out. I think game six was possibly one of the most frustrating things Leafs fans of this generation have ever seen, where, again, you, you come back, you get it to overtime. At least the first 10 shots of OT. It was all Toronto. Austin Matthews bombs away from everywhere. Everyone was bombs away from everywhere, trying so hard to dominate the flow of play, which they did, and just trying to get that goal. They couldn't do it. And then Yasperi Kakanyemi ends up getting the puck in the high slot one wrist shot later. It's in the back of the net going to a game seven. That's, I mean, with all due respect to Price, I think there is a little bit of puck luck going on there. And... Also, all due respect to Montreal, I frankly believe that if John Tavares had not been kneed in the head in a freak accident, Toronto takes this in five. Why do I say that? Because John Tavares is an elite player, first of all. Having two number one centers to deal with would have made Montreal's life a lot more difficult because there's only one Philip Deneau Mm -hmm. and one Philip Deneau line. And because games five and six were so razor close, and frankly, so was game number one, also a one-goal game, I believe that John Tavares would have been able to generate enough offense for the Leafs to get one more goal than they did in either Game 5 or Game 6. And if that happens, Toronto was moving on. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I am a bit biased because I'm, I'm not a fan of the Habs or the, uh, at all, but I do think the Montreal Canadiens fans out there need to put this in perspective. And I understand why they wouldn't because Toronto's a hated rival, but... I honestly think that we need to look at the facts of the case sometimes and realize that, you know, for all the Canadians did right in terms of physicality and fundamental defense and elite goaltending and self-belief, of course, that they 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 ended up having a bit of luck go their way and that, uh, you know, John Tavares is a massive loss both on the ice and psychologically and it really was that close and that is of little solace to Leafs fans and the Leafs organization but at the same time it's something worth mentioning and remembering Uh, yeah and I think that's good to put it in context and I'll give a little bit more context to the Montreal Canadiens they won three games in a row to stave off elimination against us and then they won game one obviously against Winnipeg and we're going to get to Winnipeg in game one in just a minute here 
but that was the first four-game win streak for Montreal in over two years. Wow. So it just happened to be the first four-game win streak in over two years comes when they're facing elimination. So I think that you're right in a little bit there that it seemed like the stars sort of aligned in Montreal's favor a little bit. But also to kind of give it the other side of this context, before the season started, when you know Brian Burke was still at Sportsnet at the time, Brian Burke was talking about it, and he said that he believed that the Montreal Canadiens were built the best out of all of the North teams for the playoffs. Interesting. Right. And I mean, now is this because their blue line averages 225 pounds? Or <laughs> I'm being facetious, but explain. I mean, Brian Burke, he definitely loves his truculence and he loves his size and his and his stuffness. As do I, but right. And yeah, you know, I, I I like big defensive too, right? So it's always good to see a good hit. But Brian Burke, he made kind of the point that he thinks that they're the best because of the way that they addressed certain needs. In the offseason, they made the they made the deal in the sign with Josh Anderson, who added a goal scoring punch, you know, and they, physicality. And physicality, very exactly. They got Joel Edmondson mm-hmm. as well. They still have Carey Price, but they also then got Jake. You Allen. know, I think with Joel Edmondson, which we obviously discussed in our in our panel with Cam, who is no doubt Cam. If you're listening to this, you are living it up right now, and uh, we'll see what happens next. But uh, Joel Edmondson, it, it was very interesting that the Montreal Canadiens saw something in him and they signed him and he took his game to another level this year being a rock-solid physical shutdown defenseman. Another one I'd like to add, which I'm sure you're going to get to, is Tyler Toffoli, not only for his goal-scoring ability, but for that championship pedigree, the two Stanley Cups of the Los Angeles Kings certainly brought leadership and poise to a very, very young team. Absolutely, no doubt. And that definitely helps for the Canadiens, but... Again, the big thing that the Canadians were relying on going into this playoffs was their two young centers, Kotkaniemi and Suzuki. And I think what we've seen in the playoffs is that Kotkaniemi and Suzuki, they're good players, and they were able to outscore Matthews and Marner. So I, I think that when we look at the Canadians and we look at how they were built, they were designed to be a tough team, a rugged team, and a defensive team, which doesn't always lend itself well to the playoffs. But or, then in the case of the New York Islanders, it does. Right. Well, the New York Islanders were the fourth seed in the in the there you go. in the East Division. So teams that are more built for tough defensive play maybe struggle scoring in a more freer, uh, more penalty-filled regular season. But when the calls get closer, teams get more defensive some of these teams like the Islanders and the Canadians and even the Los Angeles Kings of the 2012-2014 era, you know, those types of teams are built for the playoffs and not the regular season. And, yeah, I think that that's also part of the playing into the conversation. Okay, and very, very good point with the, with the Kings teams of the early 2010s. right? You know, their best player... Andre Kopitar, again, is a big, rugged two-way center. He can score, yeah, but he can also shut you down and make all the little plays to help you win. Jeff Carter, again, big, physical two-way sniper who can play defense or rip one from 40 feet. 
Jared Stoll was kind of like a bigger, stronger, grittier Philip Dano, where he and his line could smother any top line essentially with a pillow mm-hmm. in the playoffs over the course of a seven-game series or, or, or shorter. So I think that's a very good point, and certainly Montreal put that to full effect against the Winnipeg Jets, much to the group, the chagrin, rather, of Jets fans and myself. Mm-hmm. But... You know, the, the Winnipeg Jets come in here with the ultra-rare eight-game postseason. They sweep, and then they get swept. It's it's kind of interesting, and they certainly weren't able to get up much going in, pardon me, in that series against Montreal, scoring four goals in their last three games. That's, oh, pa- pardon me, three goals <laughs> in their last three games. That's, a, that's not going to cut it. That was obviously, a lot of that was Carey Price. A lot of that was that rugged defense core shutting things down. But unfortunately, just like the Maple Leaf series, another freak incident defined the the Canadiens-Jets series on the outside. And that, of course, was Mark Shifley's charge and resulting suspension on Jake Evans. Now, a couple of months ago, we talked about what Tom Wilson did to Artemi Panarin and Pavel Buknevich in the regular season and how hard that was to watch. Uh, folks, if you haven't seen Mark Shifley's charge on Jake Evans, it's almost even more difficult to watch. The slow motion on that play, if you YouTube it, is absolutely gnarly. And what happened is that uh, the Jets were down one goal in the final minutes of the third period. They pulled Connor Hellebuck to try to get the extra attacker and get it equalized but a bad pass went all the way down into their end of the zone and Jake Evans a young Montreal forward got to the puck first and tried to wrap it around the net and put it in for the empty net goal Mark Shifley saw that this was happening and got on his horse and hauled straight down the ice 200 feet but realized that he was not going to be able to get there in time to prevent the empty net goal or he certainly was not going to be able to get there to do that and so he put the body on Jake Evans, and you know Mark Shifley is six foot three, about 210, 215 pounds. Jake Evans, uh, much smaller than that. I believe he's he's definitely under 200 pounds. He's he's under six feet, and it, Shifley ragdolled him. He 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 went 200 feet down the ice, and he absolutely ragdolled him. The slow motion's absolutely gnarly. It obviously caused a massive scrum. Jake Evans suffered a concussion, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and Mark Shifley was suspended for four games. And every analyst I've heard talk about it said that it was an unacceptable, indefensible hit. And I understand that, and I would agree with that. But there's a cu- there's a couple of things that I would like to bring up. And the chief thing that I would like to bring up is the fact that Mark Shifley is a first-time offender. He's a very, he's, he's a clean, disciplined player who plays the game the right way. Does that make his charge acceptable? No, it does not. But I think certainly mitigating factors I think should have come into play a little bit more than they did when this suspension was being assessed. And why do I say that? Because Tom Wilson got nothing for his fifth offense when he mugged a guy uh, and and which was, of course, the Artemi Panarin incident we discussed earlier. And I honestly think that those two things, when put together, set a very, very bad precedent. It basically shows me that the Department of Player Safety is fickle, 
and inconsistent mm -hmm. when it comes to in, to enforcing the very thing that they're supposed to enforce, which is player safety. Was it a bad hit? Sure, but it was also Mark Shifley's first-time offense, and he's not a guy with a reputation for towing the line. Tom Wilson has a well-established reputation for being an overly aggressive player at times, uh, crossing the line. Uh, he's had at least three or four suspensions in his past for very, very unacceptable forms of behavior, physical behavior against his opponents. And like I understand that the Montreal Canadiens and their fans are fired up about the Shifley hit, mm -hmm. and that they obviously think that the four-game suspension was well-deserved, and maybe a lot of them wanted more and something harsher, but... Listen, when we pull the when we pull it back and we look at it from thirty thousand feet, when we look at it from the big picture, I think that the the root cause of the issue here is is actually the Department of Player Safety and its apparent inability or unwillingness to consistently enforce the thing that they're supposed to protect. Interesting. I there's a lot to digest there and first off I wanna say that I agree with you on the player safety aspect. I think that the inconsistency that the Department of Player Safety has shown has proven that George Peros, the person in charge, is not suitable for the position. I do not agree with the inconsistency that has been with certain players getting certain suspensions and Tom Wilson getting nothing. I think that, you know, George Peros. Uh, is, you know, more primitive to certain situations than uh, certain play and certain players that than he is to other players. For example, I think that the eight-game suspension on Kadri was a lot, but again, it's a repeat offender. But again, to see that Wilson got nothing and it was even wasn't even the playoffs; it was the regular season, and you know, at least two of those games were going to be regular season games that he would have been suspended for. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me why there's so much indis, like inconsistency and discrepancies between the player safety uh, department suspending some players and not other players, or suspending some players more heavily than other players. So I'll agree with you on this. On the Shifley hit, the way that I was seeing it is when Shifley was skating back. He crossed the blue line, but w shortly after he crossed the blue line, you can watch, and Mark Shifley stopped skating. He stopped moving his feet, and he went into a glide. So what this tells me here in this instant is that Mark Shifley is not actually interested in getting to the net to make a play on the puck. He's not actually interested in trying to do like any form of defense. Because if he kept skating, and if he didn't go into a glide, he actually probably could have been in a position by the time he got there to attempt to make a play on the puck. Hmm. I'm not saying that he could have stopped the empty netter, but I'm saying that if he had kept skating and not gone into a glide, he could have at least been in a better position to play the puck. He didn't. He went into a glide because he had a predetermined notion that he was going to hit Jake Evans if Jake Evans attempted the wraparound, which he did. Jake Evans attempted the wraparound. Mark Shifley made no attempt to play the puck and absolutely went through Jake Evans. So
So when I was watching this and watching the situation with Shifley, I saw this hit as predatory with no intention of actually playing hockey. He made the decision to do a body check and he has to live with the consequences of this action. So that's where I see the hit. And I do not agree. I, I don't think that this hit should be legal. There are some people who are saying that this is how old-time hockey used to be played. Oh, Jake Evans should have kept his head up. He should have kept his head up. People, he should have been looking. And, like, Jake Evans, you know, you can't put yourself in a vulnerable position like that. To that, I just say stop it. Like, come on. Like, just because that's the way it used to be doesn't mean that it should be. And I get it. It's the playoffs. It's intense. But that doesn't give you a right to give another man a concussion on his birthday, no less. <laughs> right? Yikes. But, like, you know, like, I understand that, you know, Mark Shifley is trying to, you know, make body contact. And that was his goal on the play. But, you know, you can't stop playing hockey to try and make a hit on a player you still have to at least attempt to make a play on the right and then knowing you've got 160 feet at least worth of momentum from the other end of the ice right now you mentioned that Shifley isn't a repeat offender Uh, that's okay that that plays into part what I'm going to talk about next just because this hit is bad and this hit is illegal doesn't make sense or doesn't excuse um Jake Evans from not looking. Does that make sense? So the way that uh, I heard about this is Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, they have a 31 Thoughts yes. podcast. Very good stuff. Yeah, very good stuff. The way they talked about it is that Elliot uh, had a, he was talking with a player, he didn't, uh, sorry, he was talking with a former player who's in the Hall of Fame. He didn't name the person who is also in like player development. So that's either skills development or coaching. And he said that how he looked at the play with between Shifley and Evans, that um, he said, I'm going to look at this play, and I'm going to see, yes, that's a bad hit. Don't do this. That should be out of the game of hockey. But also, younger players, keep your head up. Just because it's illegal doesn't mean that a team isn't going to do it. So, for example, high sticking is illegal, right? You're not allowed to high stick another player. But players wear visors because they know that high sticks still happen. Fouling in basketball is illegal. But when you drive to the basket in a crowded paint area, you're probably going to get fouled. So players brace for that and they prepare for that. Just because something isn't in the, or is in the rule books and it disallows it doesn't mean that it excuses you from stop playing safely. You know... Uh, in a situation like where a goon like Rafi Torres or Matt Cook is on the ice. Thankfully, they're retired now. Thankfully, they're retired now, but you had to be especially aware because these, those types of players would routinely cross the line and do things that were not allowed. But in any situation, I think it's important to know that you can't just expect everybody else to follow the rules in every situation, especially when you're about to score a goal. So I think in that situation, Jake Evans needs to learn a little bit from this situation, but that in no way means that Shifley is excused. I liked the four-game suspension. I thought it was harsh, but I agreed with it. I think you took the words right out of my mouth on, on all of those points, and 
I think that it's, like you said, a learning experience for both men. Much more for Shifley, because he needs to learn how to essentially not do that again, and, and to make sure that he, uh, whether it was emotional or whether it was bad judgment, uh, you're right, there's no need from a charge back from two, uh, essentially 200 feet. At the same time, again, like even though the Habs and their fans are rightfully fired up about this turn of events, Jake Evans does need to keep his head off, which, up, which doesn't excuse Shifley's charge, but it does essentially give a reminder to everyone that, listen, this is NHL hockey, things are going to happen, and even if it's not something so blatant, uh, sometimes guys get hit into the boards sometimes. Mm-hmm. Guys get cross-checked from behind. If you don't, And essentially, if you don't keep your head up, a perfectly clean legal hit has the opportunity to knock you out with an injury for several games or longer, particularly if it is delivered by a big, strong player who knows how to finish his checks. Like, if you're not looking at a Shea Weber or a Ben Sherratt puts his body into you, especially if you're a smaller player, listen, the results are not going to be pretty. And it could be a perfectly clean hit. That doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. And that doesn't mean that it lacks the potential to injure you. And so if you want to, A, keep yourself safe, and B, make it harder on physical players by minimizing their physical advantage, you have to play with constant awareness. That's kind of what you sign up for when you join the National Hockey League. And yeah, I I would fully agree with your conclusion there. Now, really quickly, I did want to go on to our final subject of the night. And that, of course, is the Vegas Golden Knights. Mm -hmm. See what I did there? Gene Principe would be proud. Um, (laughs) So... Earlier on in the month of May, the Colorado Avalanche were looking like maybe the only team who could take on the Tampa Bay Lightning punch for punch. The, they had a massive, they have a massive top line. Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rantanen, and Gabriel Landeskog are game changers individually. Together, they form one of the best lines in hockey. They have a fast, mobile defense, and including Kale McCarr, a Norris Trophy finalist by the way, is the trophy for the best defenseman in hockey a particular year. Philip Grubauer, Vesna Trophy finalist, trophy for the best goaltender in the league, and a bunch of depth up and down their lineup, including guys like Valerie Nichushkin, Andre Burakovsky, JT Comfort, Tyson Jost. It's not exactly fair on paper. Like, Tampa Bay is not fair on paper. Colorado's kind of not fair on paper either. However, the same can be said for the Golden Knights, if you're not undervaluing guys like Jonathan Marchessault and Riley Smith, and you realize that a guy like Alex Petrangelo is still the stabilizing force he was in St. Louis, Max Pacioretty can still snipe like he did in Montreal. And most of all, their cap, well, I probably shouldn't say most of all, Vegas has a very good, well-rounded team. Again, Marc-Andre Fleury, another top-flight goaltender, And the guy I want to talk about specifically is former Ottawa Senator Mark Stone, who is the captain not just for his character and leadership, although he has plenty of that. He's flat out one of the best two-way forwards in in hockey. Oh, look, another award I'm about to mention. The Selkie Trophy for the league's best defensive forward alongside Patrice Bergeron, one of the best two-way forwards of this generation. And... Despite all of this, Colorado won the first game 7-1. It was a one-sided barn burner involving a Ryan Reeves suspension at the end. (laughs) Um, And 
Kevin Bieksa humorously said uh, on on Sportsnet that you know what it's time to cancel the playoffs and give the Stanley Cup to Colorado, and then everything changed when the Fire Nation, or in this case, the Golden Knights attacked. If you don't get that reference, don't worry about it. <laughs> but essentially everything changed when the Golden Knights attacked, and even though the Avalanche escaped with a Game 2 victory, 3-2 overtime, they were heavily outshot by the Golden Knights in that game. Close to a 2-1 ratio, the Golden Knights continued this dominance in Games 3 and 4, which they proceeded to win at home, dominating the flow of play, ultimately winning both games and they won again in overtime despite it being a a more even game in Denver and Colorado getting off to a much better start and Vegas is poised to close out the Colorado Avalanche in game six tomorrow night it's Thursday night and so one thing that I've noticed when I've been watching this series and I think everyone noticed is that Colorado who's an incredibly fast skilled team they like to run and gun Get, get chances off the rush. Nathan McKinnon is one of the fastest forwards in the league. Miko Rantanen is fast, too. They have a lot of guys who can make plays at speed. And uh, like I said before, Kale McCarr and another defenseman in Samuel Girard are incredibly good skaters who can either join the rush themselves or spring these forwards with great passes. They have not been able to do very much of that in this series outside of game one and part of game number five. And why why is that the case? Now, part of it is obviously an overall team defense. Uh, Much like the Montreal Canadiens, the Golden Knights have an excellent top four that's been stymieing uh, and putting pressure on the Avalanche. But Mark Stone and his line mates, Chandler Stevenson and Max Pacioretty, appear to be doing to the McKinnon line what Philip Deneau's line did to the Austin Matthews line in the Leafs series. Let me give you some numbers. Entering the Vegas series, Nathan McKinnon was averaging 1.7 points per game in the postseason, which, by the way, ranks third on the NHL's all-time leaderboard behind who? That would be Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky. You know, a couple of overrated guys. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Two of the best to ever play it, bar freaking none. Right, and... You know, Nathan McKinnon and his and his line mates were absolutely shredding it. Uh, Miko Ratnan to date has 12 points in nine games. Nathan McKinnon to date has 13 points in nine games. Gabriel Landeskog brings a lot of grit and leadership and physicality to go with that complementary offense. And what does this translate to? Well, in the playoffs, not against the Mark Stone line, Colorado uh, Nathan McKinnon was generating. 33.3 shots per 60 minutes and 2.59 expected goals per 60 minutes. These are just advanced metrics that t- are telling you how many shots are going on net in a, a regulation game and how many of those are expected to turn into goals. And then Mark Stone and his line mates happened to the McKinnon mm. crew. A- and take a look at this, uh, folks. Like I said before, with uh, with McKinnon not against Stone's line, 33.3 shots per 60 minutes, 32.09 scoring chances per 60 minutes. When Mark Stone and his line mates are involved, 20.22 shots and scoring chances per 60 minutes, a decrease of over 10 mm-hmm. in both categories, and zero goals. Wow. Zero goals for the McKinnon line 
when Mark Stone, Chandler Stevenson, and Max Pacioretty is on them. That's insane. That is very insane. That that shows you the extent of like how committed these guys are to defense. Like most of the time when you think of Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone, you think of their offensive abilities, not necessarily how committed they are to like defense and and you Although know, Stone is known much more for his defense. Max Pacioretty specifically. Yes. And you know, Chandler Stevenson He's been able to kind of carve out a niche role there, kind of playing between them two. And, you know, but Max Pacioretty, especially, like, being able to provide an offensive output while also stifling, you know, the top line of Colorado Avalanche really is a valuable thing for Vegas, especially in a series where, you know, if they win, they're going to be playing against, you know, some really tough competition possibly Tampa in the future where you know they have more top end skill and you always have to try and contain that so I think with what Vegas has been able to do especially because you know Flurry's been very good it's been important to know that defense is something that this team has been committed to and that's really something that you know Mark Stone emulates and the impressive thing about that is Mark Stone does not do this because he is like Chandler Stevenson and can fly up and down the ice to shut down opposing scoring chances. Mark Stone has never been a great skater. He still isn't. And Nathan McKinnon is an absolute Maserati. And so you might be thinking, asking yourself, if you're a hockey fan, how, how is this matchup fair? Nathan McKinnon can skate circles around Mark Stone with ease. And he can. But Mark Stone makes up the difference with his intelligence. Again, you don't get you don't get a Selkie nomination by accident, mm-hmm. and also with his with his excellent stick play mm-hmm. and with his excellent positioning. Frequently, what we see Stone and his linemates do is to stymie the Avalanche speed by making sure they don't get going in the first place. Uh, when Nathan McKinnon and his crew are trying to come through the neutral zone with speed, what Mark Stone does is he just puts his body in front of him, puts a stick in the way, and forces McKinnon wide, cuts some of his speed in the neutral zone so he cannot hit the offensive blue line at full stride. If that happens, good luck. Yeah. But uh, you know that that's not been that's not been happening, and it was and it's really been uh, it's really been poise and intelligence and game plan, and even. In situations where the stone line is, you know, is obviously is trailing the McKinnon line as they enter the zone, they position themselves very well so that when the Vegas Golden Knights defenders are able to make a stick check or play the body and force some kind of a turnover, those forwards are in position to pick up the loose puck and spring somebody else going right back the other way. And over time, these body blows have worn down the avalanche. Uh, both the forwards and the defense by styming them and making sure that they can't get their rush offense going and it and it has led to this here's some more numbers to you guys when the McKinnon line does not play against Mark Stone they have a 55% share of high danger chances in any given game against the Stone line 27.8% and as we know zero goals yeah that's definitely huge is that that number not being able to generate scoring chances. And especially like I said, quality scoring chances. Yeah, not being able to generate that scoring opportunity is absolutely key. 
And um, yeah, that's a that's a real good way to beat the Avalanche is to shut down that number one line. And and really, it seems like Vegas, which is a fast team in their own right, is beating the Avalanche in their own game. And if they do advance and close out the series, it will be very interesting to see what happens going forward. And you know, potentially against potentially against Montreal, that would be an intriguing matchup, in my opinion. But you know, we, we we're gonna have to see what happens, and that'll do it for us today. Uh, on the draft board again folks as we've been talking about plenty of good stuff going on and it remains to be seen uh, what happens when the dust will settle but for now he's tyson i'm david and as usual we're signing off from the draft board thank you for listening to the draft board podcast music intro and outro is produced by graham bass your hosts again are david song and tyson workington come back next week for more insight from the rink the turf and the court see you soon